0: Welcome back to the Food and Drink Federation's Convention 2021, sponsored by Clark Energy, and that's somewhat topical because our next panel this afternoon is the route to net zero. Obviously, it's a very topical issue at the moment, with uh, obviously uh, COP 26 taking place in Glasgow in November. So our panelists will be discussing the role of UK food and drink manufacturers in working towards net zero. I'm delighted to introduce my colleague Emma Pearcy to chair this. She is our head of climate change and energy policy at FDF. And whilst Emma is getting set up, just to remind you that we have a wide range of podcasts on the FDF podcast channel, which cover various things around this topic, and also some webinars which are available on Listen Back on the FDF website, www.fdf.org.uk. So, without further ado, over to you, Emma. Our panel today uh, on net zero really closely follows the launch of our net zero by 2040 ambition. And so we are exploring today the momentum building in the sector on net zero, the progress made already, the the major challenges ahead, and how we can work together to overcome them. And to do this, I have a great set of panellists with me today. So uh, if you can please um, share your cameras. Um, We have uh, Paul Graham, managing director from Brickvick PLC. We have Lee Shepherd, Director of Corporate Affairs and Policy at Appetito, Karen Fisher, Special Advisor at RAP, uh, Rishi Madlani, Head of Sustainable Finance and NetWest, and Adam Ray Summerson, Project and Market Development Manager at Clark Energy. So welcome all and thank you for joining me today. Uh, for all of our attendees, um, if you do have any comments or questions, please do pop these in the questions box. If we're not able to cover them in the session, then I will make sure uh, to share them with all of our panellists uh, post event. So uh, let's let's kick off. Uh, Rishi, uh, let, let's start with you. Um, the last couple of years have been really tough for business. Yeah. With the businesses that, that you're working with, uh, what, what do you see uh, as the drivers uh, for, for business in terms of what we're seeing with the ESG agenda and net zero and, and the momentum that's building?
1: Great question. Emma. Thanks for having me on today. Um, so obviously, um, it goes like saying the last couple, 18 months or uh, 14 months have been really horrendous for many businesses. Some have also thrived in this period. And we mustn't forget that. But it's been a really mixed experience. And, and, and on a human level, it's been very difficult some of you may have seen that cartoon uh, which showed uh, various waves coming towards you the first one was covid the second one was the economic crash the third was climate change and the fourth was biodiversity which i think is particularly apt for our audience today that does not change throughout covid and as we begin to emerge from this that that ex- existential threat of climate change and biodiversity loss which really impacts what we do is not has not gone away and in fact in some ways we need we have a shorter period to act We've seen, obviously, um, as Nicky introduced, we've got COP coming up, and I'm proud that we're one of the principal sponsors of COP in Glasgow um, later this year. And we've seen an unheralded wall of policy coming at us from government around this, whether it's TCF regulations around TCFD, whether it's the Prime Minister's 10-point plan, and, you know, whatever you think of the plan itself, it's it's unusual for a Prime Minister to be making um, climate change speeches and uh, and having it escalated to that level. We're seeing pension funds um, expressing more interest, I chair Camden's pension fund, we've already been an ESG award leading um, uh, participant in this, but actually it's become mainstream. That was really, that's been really important for me in the last couple of years. The questions our investors ask us when I join investor relations meetings or our, uh, or our ratings agencies, this is becoming an increasing layer of focus. For your sector in particular, I think this is a real opportunity as we, as we reopen up, as the economy reopens up, there's chances we've got an opportunity to reset the way we do business. When we um, back in February last um, year, our CEO set our new strategy, our new purpose strategy, to be a, a leading climate bank in the UK. Now, this is relevant to you because actually, this is about your access to capital in the future. We have committed to halve our finance emissions by 2030. That means if you, as our customers, are not reducing your carbon emissions, your cost of funding will increase, and that not in the not too distant future. So. If I can't set, give a more strong uh, message, I can't, I can't possibly give a more strong message that now is the time to act as the economy begins to reopen and now is the time to take action on climate change.
0: Thanks, Rishi. That's a, a really good way to to set the scene. Um, Paul, uh, perhaps I could come to you next. Um, I understand that Britvic is uh, actually the first soft drinks company to sign up to uh, the 1.5 degree pathway. Um, could you say a bit
2: more about what this means and, and some background to this decision? Yeah, sure. Thanks, Emma. Um, and great to be on the panel this afternoon. Um, I, and I guess, yeah, I guess Rishi's just kind of, kind of summed up a little bit there, which is which is kind of, a, kind of a call to action. So if you're not on the right side of the argument, it's going to get tough for you. So, you know, when we're looking at this, we said we, we, uh, that we needed to be on the right side of the argument. Um, it was very aligned and consistent with our strategy so we have a strategy around healthy people and healthy planet um so we learned to look at so what's that going to mean so we challenged ourselves to sign up to the 1.5 degree science-based targets because we think that's the right target to go for it's not the easiest by any stretch in fact it's probably the, probably one of the hardest and getting into scope one two three i'm sure we'll get into all of those conversations as well so we wanted to challenge ourselves to uh, do the right thing which is in our dna typically as a, as a drinks business we've been around, What's in our products, and uh, and reducing sugar content, and and we were you know British figures, British buttermilk company in its in its um, in its founding days, where the name come from. So that's kind of been always in our DNA, but we're having to get to that on sustainability as well. So that was the reason why um, we have set ourselves a baseline from 2017. Um, we know in the first instance we have got to take some targets to get down in terms of our scopes one and two, which we can do with some internal measures. Um, uh, particularly around renewable energies. Um, we know there's some bigger, more structural challenges to come. When we look at some of our big manufacturing plants, where we're using CHP to to run those at the moment, and we're going to have to think about alternative ways of doing that. And that's going to be challenging. Um, but then we, we've but we got a plan laid down as well. And it's also probably fair of me to say that a number of our other competitors in the categories have also signed up to the target as well. So it's great to have them on board.
0: Absolutely. And actually, that's a good segue to you, Lee. Um, could you tell us a bit about your approach and where Appetito is uh, on this road to net zero? Uh, what's your, uh, your view on how businesses can demonstrate action and, and commitment?
3: Uh, afternoon, Emma. Afternoon, everybody. Happy to be on the panel. Um, I mean, you used two words there. You talked about commitment and you talked about action. Um, and I think the commitment challenge is a, is a real one. Um, I think there needs to be real commitment to decarbonisation across all of the scopes. Um, I think there's a danger that there's quite a lot of loose, sort of marketing-led net zero commitments being made at the moment, where people are more focusing on the sort of the offsetting rather than actually decarbonising their operations. Um, you know, various studies have been done that sort of show that I think in the FTSE 100 over a third of companies have got a net zero commitment but less than 20% have backed that up with a science-based target. The Climate Action 100 group represents something similar. I think they, they looked at 159 companies and whilst more than half of those would have a net zero commitment, only, only just over 20% had actually included scope three within their analysis. So I think there's a, there's a danger of greenwash at the moment. And I think commitment to doing the right thing, a science-based approach is key. And then I suppose I'd lean into action as well. Um, You know, net zero, I know the dates are coming down all the time, but the commitment dates are a long way away. And I think possibly there are a number of CEOs out there making commitments towards net zero, frankly, knowing that it's not going to be delivered on their watch. Um, And I think kind of action in the short term is absolutely key. Um, You know, lots of reports out there saying that very few companies have set interim targets around this and i fear the marketing department have got hold of the message and that's the story that's being told but there's not a lot going on behind it um so, so we've been on this journey over the last year um so we we have a net zero commitment i mean it won't surprise you to hear this on the basis i've said how important it is but we back that up with an application for science-based targets and we're also publishing challenging interim 2025 targets and, I think that's important, but I think it's important for your team as well. We've found that that's really kind of galvanised and motivated our team. Everybody wants to be involved in Net Zero. What a great thing to be working towards. Um, And showing that short-term commitment gets everybody in the business committed to it. Yeah, absolutely.
0: I mean, reflecting on the points uh, around sort of action, um, Adam, um, I'm also thinking about Paul's comments earlier around uh, sort of CHP on-site, um, linking in with, you know, how, how to, to manage uh, CHP on-site in terms of uh, looking at, at changing fuels potentially, or, you know, how to decarbonise. On, on my general question would also be, uh, so when you're working with businesses, what are the kind of technologies and tools that you're looking at in regards to reducing the scope one Two on-site emissions? And, and then the CHP question as well
4: yeah thanks emma um, and and thank you for having me um and yeah when I, I grimaced a little bit when paul made that comment um but but only because you know in in our opinion chp is still a valuable asset kind of in the short term as a as an enabler um for for the path to decarbonisation, um given that you know the, the the financial savings that that a on that an on-site chp can make to individual businesses utility spend you know those savings could be reinvested in you know direct scope one type measures i.e improving your on-site efficiency um changing you know, refrigerant uses updating some of your company vehicles and likewise with scope two emissions clearly we, you know we, we we have the ability to to, to uh, offset utility um that, that, that is purchased to the site utilizing that core chp asset what we as Clark Energy are doing um, in terms of the overall kind of um, message and in the, in the, in the tools in which we are looking at, the tools are the same as, as, as we have always looked at. It's understanding an individual business's utility usage, um, be it the half-hour electri- electrical consumption or 15-minute interval data um, for some of our colleagues overseas, um, and, and comparing that and a baseline engine model then against, your thermal usages, be that heat, hot water, steam, um, cooling, or a combination of, of all of those. And the, the the task now is still the same from assessing those utilities, um, usages and understanding those, but then going one step further and saying, OK, well, if a CHP was the core asset that can help deliver substantial savings and, and be utilised as an enabler today, we could also then look at incorporation of renewables that don't necessarily need government incentive to stack up anymore, such as solar PV um, and integration of other technologies, storage, for example, energy storage, um, be it through battery or thermal storage equally, can help us kind of offset and manage where our peaks are within the day, where our cost base lies, and also where the availability of renewable electricity lies, i.e. we can import electricity when it's greener, And we can export electricity when the the grid in itself is not so green. Um, So there's a number of tools that that, that we're trying to use and a number of technologies that we're trying to incorporate. I think, you know, Clark Energy historically as an organization has been considered a very good engine delivery company. We're moving away from that now. We want people to think of us as an energy solutions business um, that that can help them on that path to net zero. The final point, Emma, that, that you raised uh, with respect to to, to decarbonisation and alternative fuels is the ability to utilize the existing assets on a variety of fuels, be it by a methane-based fuel or a hydrogen fuel. Now clearly we're some way off and and uh having hydrogen as a as a, as a mainstay of the of the gas network um and opinions differ on on the vi- as to the viability of, of what hydrogen can contribute in, in the future. Um you know we're all eagerly awaiting uh, the, uh, the strategy from Bayes and hopefully that comes in in good time ahead of COP26 that we can digest it and think you know what is the realistic decarbonisation of gas strategy given that we've done very very well so far at decarbonising electricity at a grid scale. Yes, absolutely
0: it's a really good point there. I think um, we've just had a, a question come in around uh, scope 3 emissions, so this is a, this is a good time to, to, to raise scope 3. I, and I understand that actually for, for food and drink, um, actually scope 3 emissions is a, around the supply chain can actually account for, for around 85% of uh, food and drink manufacturing's carbon footprint. Um, Karen, um, we've heard already, you know, some of the sort of challenges, uh, well, you know, that we've, yeah, around. Uh, all, all these Scope 1, 2 uh, emissions. And then looking at Scope 3, I know that RAP is uh, is doing a lot of work on this. Could you explain a bit more about uh, what you're doing? And um, yeah, that'd be great.
5: Yeah, no, absolutely. So we're very firmly focused on the challenge around measuring Scope 3 emissions and tracking progress against Scope 3 emissions, and particularly the purchase goods category. So that's going to be the largest chunk for most businesses. And that includes all of the emissions that arise in every stage of production and supply of all of the ingredients and products that you're purchasing. So it's a really complex category. It's notoriously difficult to measure, which is one of the reasons why not not everyone currently is. But it's so, such, measurement is such an important first step to management. And it's really hard to see how if you're not measuring, you can take those steps towards decarbonisation because you don't know what you're aiming for. And um, what we've heard really time and time again, is that there are loads of challenges around firstly the sheer complexity of the task, but also around the lack of level playing field, which has caused Quite a lot of inertia and a barrier to progress to date. So, things like calculation approaches and tools all giving different answers, which is some, I think, not unnatural concerns around the fairness of potential comparisons. The challenge of suppliers facing multiple requests for information from their customers, often in a slightly different ways. And that sometimes then is causing further inertia. Um, oh, sorry, is that, is that on my line? The uh, I think it might be Karen, or does others? Uh, okay, well, I'll, I'll give it a little while longer. Um, We've been in this place before with data challenges on, on food waste and we've had some success with actually getting a place of much better consistency across the whole food and drink system, really, on food waste measurement. So that gives us, I guess, a little bit of confidence that we can make progress, it's obviously a much, much bigger challenge. But through the Court of Framework, actually, we've now got a critical mass of a lot of the retailers, food service, suppliers, industry bodies, farming bodies, standards bodies, other NGOs, platform providers, government departments that all have agreed to be now working together. And we're working on two main things one being a standardised go three accounting and reporting method with that addresses the specific challenges for food and drink businesses. And then the other addressing some of the common data challenges and and how we can access better data sources going forward. That's where we're focused. Uh,
0: thanks, Karen. Um, I think I'd like to let's let's explore this area a bit more and I'm going to perhaps drop in a a couple more questions um here um to ones that circulated for to our panelists. But um let's in any case start we'll start with Paul. Um Paul, you know, with all of these areas to focus on, scope one, two and three, uh, and and there's clear need that you know the council to highlight this holistic approach across industry. I mean, for yourself, what do you see as some of the, the biggest challenges um you know that, that you uh, that
2: are facing the industry and, and yourselves at Brickbeck? yeah um yeah thanks I, I, i'm going to come at this question i think from uh from the angle of you know running the business as opposed to probably just looking at it from a pure sustainability or or net zero lens um uh, and uh, and you know and i guess i you know i've got to sit in the boardroom and have to sit with the exec team and have to make calls and i i think one of the biggest challenges competing priorities particularly you know and, and I think particularly into medium-sized and smaller business as well um, is that is the availability of resources, the availability of manpower, particularly when people are dealing with you know, COVID recovery, which has put a huge a strain on pretty much every business. Um, Brexit, which I think we've still got more to come from, again, has put another um, strain. What what kind of economic, economy and are, are we B-shaped, U-shaped, any other shape that we're going to come back to uh, I, I suspect we're going to end up with this kind of split economy of of um, you know some people sitting on their money that they haven't been able to spend for the last year, desperate to spend more, and other people probably in some really difficult economic challenges and times, and and all that's going to kind of play through in terms of in terms of the response to the market. Um, so you have to make choices between where to put the money um, and and the sustainability and and net zero carbon quite often becomes a long term commitment, which is quite often gets pushed down to the, the priority of a short term commitment. Sorry, that's my phone going up the wrong time. I'll turn that off. It always happens, doesn't it? Like the webcam, it's not running all day. Um, uh, so, so, I, so I, I, they're, they're the challenges that we that, you know, I have to deal with and say, you know, are we investing behind our people? Are we investing behind um, brands? Are we investing behind innovation? all things that, that businesses have to do on a cycle. But we know we've got this big looming challenge. And, and particularly when you you know Leah's a great point when you say it's, it's not on my watch, and it's out there and it's 2035 or 2040 or 2050. You know, the temptation is to move that downstream and say, well, we can do that next year. Uh, and of course, you, you can't do it next year, because you've got to start. Um, so, I, so I think that the challenges is, is you know, being having the courage to hold the commitment. Um, to to put the right level of resource and investment in for the long term good, when you know you're under some short term pressures, and pretty much and there isn't a business out there that isn't under some short term pressure at the moment. Um, I think the second bit comes back into the into the scope three work when you know you know my carbon is your carbon, and and uh, you know I deal in the in the grocery trade, and you know I'm I'm the supply chain for the grocers, but I've got my supply chain that's supplying me coming forward, and uh, and ultimately that whole chain sits within our. In our scope three so so um, we've got to be collaborative and we've got to be open and we've got to share and we've got to co-create and we've got to look for solutions um, historically that's not always been our default position um because generally against that you know other similar companies we would compete and against our customers and suppliers we would uh, negotiate and trade um, so we've got to learn this this collaborative skill that's obviously going to go, going to coexist behind those other things as well. Um, and I, you know, I'm encouraged by, by, by this argument. I'm encouraged by the broader sustainability. I'm, you know, we're very involved on a drinks business in terms of packaging and, and plastics and, 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 and all of that kind of conversation as well. Uh, and, and I see you know, a lot of alignment and a lot of common goodwill in terms of going forward. Um, but, the, but it's going to be a new behaviour and a new skill or, or uh, it's probably a bit unfair to, to say new, a new behaviour, but it's one that we're going to have to dial up and we're going to have to learn how, how, how to do in a bigger way. Um, and then my last point around challenge would be the clear, a clear framework on regulations and measures and scoring. So Karen makes the point, you know, if you're going to make long-term commitments, then you need confidence that the goalposts aren't going to move. Um, and you need to understand that that, that, we're, that we're playing the same game with the same rules over, over a period of time. It's very hard to to sign off that level of, of of finance or that level of commitment for the long term, if you feel that somehow in five years time, it's going to be a different agenda. So that confidence in in the framework going forward, um, that it's all being being measured in in, in the same way or consistency, I think is really, really important to get people in confidence to invest
0: thanks paul um uh, Leah i am actually going to come to you next i'd be I'd be really interested to hear um about Appetito's approach to sort of the, the scope one two a, a, and three emissions and sort of perhaps some of your thoughts reflecting on on our what our speakers uh, our fellow panelists have said already <laughs>
3: I mean, obviously, we're a food manufacturing business, so our, our scope three emissions they're 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 over ninety percent, interestingly, of our overall carbon footprint. Um, and I think you know, Paul sort of picked up on a comment there. He talked about making you know, making a start, and I think scope three scope three is an interesting one for us in terms of ingredients. So many of our customers are elderly, vulnerable. You know, we're supplying Meals on Wheels, we're supplying hospitals, people in their own homes. So it, it probably won't come as a great surprise if I said to you that roast beef and Yorkshire pudding has always been right at the top of our number one sales chart. Um, and I don't see that changing in the next few years in terms of our client base. Um, and I think there is this you know, this sort of perception that we all need to stop eating red meat. Um, I mean, our, our CEO particularly would be scared stiff by that. I don't think there's a greater lever of a steak on this planet um but i don't think it's about um these enormous changes the point i make is that kind of small changes that you can start now will 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 have a big impact um i think there's got to be a realism about what we're asking people to do you know we're not asking everybody to become to switch to plant-based diets overnight um and i think we're we're doing some work with the nhs they've got their greener plan they're looking to decarbonize And so we just looked at some menus with them, Um, some small elements of reformulation. So, you know, a cottage pie, for example, where you could replace some of the the beef with lentils. So you're getting a high protein, low carbon alternative, but you're fundamentally not changing the dish. Um, But we've also seen as well, you can make subtle changes to menus. So with a particular hospital that we're working with, they work on a two week menu cycle they'd have about 22 red meat dishes across various choices over that two week cycle. So we've, we've downturned that from 22 to 20. So made a small change. Mm. We've increased the number of white meat dishes, you know, white meat has a significantly lower carbon footprint than red meat. You know, yes, we've introduced some vegan dishes as well and fish, but we've made subtle tweaks to the menu and the hospital have been quite surprised by fundamentally how it, the menu looks very similar to how it did before, and yet we're seeing um, carbon footprint falling from to by nearly 20%. Still delivering the nutrition, still it's a cost-neutral menu in terms of changes, and yet we're able to reduce the carbon. So I think people can look at this and think it needs absolute wholesale change. And don't get me wrong, there are some serious questions to be posed to businesses around decarbonisation. As Paul said, you've got to make some tough decisions. Um, but you can also make a start with some relatively small changes. Um, and that's what I'd really encourage people to do. We Make a start. You know, a lot of this is, is not rocket science. You can get buried in the data at times and the complexity around some of the scope one changes. Um, but small changes make a difference. And I think we, we've we really seen that in diets. From a company that supplies an awful lot of red meat, the question is, how are we going to start to shift that over time? And you mm. don't need to go, go about it in a crazy fashion. So,
0: thank you. I mean, we've had a question come in, which I'd like to pose to everyone um, on the panel. Um, so, and I'll, I'll start off with you, Rishi. Um But um, the, the, the question is effectively around, you know, for... Uh, for businesses, should we say, yet to be convinced um, around uh, uh, moving towards decarbonisation, um, how, how do we, how would you approach that? Um, how would you uh, seek to um, get them on board, let's, let's put it that way? Um, and do, do, you, do you think that that is a significant, should we say, problem? Um, Rishi, what would be your, your thoughts around that question? Yeah, and, and I
1: must say, there's it, been a sea change in the last two, three years. So three, four years ago, any presentation I did on climate change would have a slide at the beginning on the science is real, climate change is real. Those slides are thankfully not just in the appendix, but actually completely in the bins. They're not needed anymore because the we've won the scientific arguments, we've moved people's thinking on. I think the point that most people have is that there's a, lot of, um, there's a lack of understanding and about some of the challenges. So this is, it isn't always easy to start. And today, you know, the peers I have around the, the panel today are all advanced and they've all started. But they all started somewhere. When, when, when each of these corporations started, they had to take that first step. Now, listen, I like to break it down to really simple pieces. Every business has some use of buildings. Every business has some sort of transport or logistics. And every business has some use of energy. Now, if you start with absolutely breaking it down, and you're going to be required to report on this, you know whether you like it or not. If you're even if you're part of the supply chain, and you might not be caught by the TCFD regulation, the companies you want to win business from will be requiring you to give them details and data on this. So the sooner you start, the sooner you give yourself and keep yourself open for business. Because when when the big boys want, uh, and and girls want to have want want uh, opening up contracts, tender, or you're pitching in, if you don't have reporting on these things, you will not. In that business, whether it's public sector, and it was, Lee, I love that. I love that example of the hospitals. There's a huge pressure on that. In my night's job as a local councillor, you know, how many, I think it's um, 29 or uh, 28 or 29 London councils declared climate emergencies. This is happening across the board. So there's an inevitable tide there. You may choose not to act. And and if I'm honest, then one of the reasons I'm here today, in particular, where we've moved to, is I want to speak not to the 15, 20% already converted, already in that journey. But that's seventy-eight percent that haven't started. There will be some nasus. So I think. I think your recent polls said eleven percent had no targets and no plans to develop them. Up to you. If that's, if that's your business model. But I think you'll be missing out on opportunities later. And I would just that's what I, that's what I would bring people back to. I also think now it's becoming even easier to start this. There is more data being becoming available, and I love the points that Paul was making about collaboration. I totally get it. It's a competitive sector. It's a cost competitive sector. But as my climate, as my CEO likes to say, climate change is a team sport. We need to tackle it together. We need to find some of those solutions together. And we need to work together. So the market leaders need to help the laggards. Because you're part of each other's supply chain and ecosystem. You as a sector have to identify solutions. And then, you know, it was really reassuring for me to see Emma's role, having a head of climate change at the Food and Drinks Federation. That's a sign of progress that we can think about decarbonising our sector as a whole.
0: Great, thank you um uh, Adam um, when looking um, at, at the scope one and two emissions um, how are you finding the sort of the, the take up um, uh, you know of that amongst customers and and the focus around energy efficiencies is that a much sort of easier sale or, or are there times where you where you're facing challenges in some of the rollout of the technologies that, that you um, offer?
4: I mean, I don't think anything's an easy sell these days. Unfortunately, Uh, we live in a very competitive marketplace. Um, But I think that to to split it up, and I think Paul did this quite nicely. There's kind of two elements: there's the there's the running a business element, and then there's the sustainability element. And from a running a business perspective, from our 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 customers' point of view, making making that bottle of J two O, for example. there's a number of considerations that the business operation needs to to make before they invest in any technology. And historically, they have been based purely upon payback period and availability of finance or budget. And and from uh, from Paul's perspective, I'm certain that, that, and and potentially Lee as well in, in this kind of context, that there will have been, you know, a an investment criteria that needs to be made for any capital project within their their respective facilities. And that typically might be three years or five years or or, or whatever it might be with a certain internal rate of return. And what we're seeing increasingly now, actually, is that, and and it brings kind of wraps back nicely to something that Rishi mentioned earlier on, that the availability of finance is going to become intrinsically linked to your sustainability efforts moving forward. So actually, that predefined investment criteria is changing. And whether it's changing purely on, you must now tick a green box, or whether it's changing on, you know, will accept a slightly elongated um, uh, return on investment or, or payback, based on the fact that I'm now investing in a, a renewable technology, I think that's something that the business operations is operations themselves need to look at. Uh, in their own kind of approach and, and the challenges that they're facing from, from our perspective in convincing customers. Um, you know, clearly those, those, those factors still hold a lot of weight. Um, but increasingly we're seeing a number of, of clients kind of questioning, okay, well, can I do something with my gas? Can I do something with my natural gas and, and the obvious, um, answer there is trying to source renewable energy guarantees of origin certificates at Rego. Because you can then say that 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 molecule of methane I'm burning in my CHP has come from a green source and is being replaced with renewable fuel. That's all well and good and great and fantastic. But they're very few and far between and it's very, very difficult for individual businesses to actually access those markets without... Um, without uh, utilising you know, somebody with a fancy office in London and a kind of a stock exchange trading type um, facility. And, and I think therein is an interesting problem on the path to decarbonisation is that no matter what we do and for all the good discussions that we are having and the positive kind of impact that we're trying to bring by bringing together a wealth of technologies, there is often a man in London... <laughs> In a stock exchange type office who who influences what is happening in these markets and that heavily influences you know a the economic value of, of any project that we're trying to push but also B, the, the, the kind of the, the true green credentials of the scheme and I think that's you know that whole sustainability drive yes it needs to be driven by policy and uh, and, and and needs to take consideration of energy efficiency and primary energy savings you know all the good things that that, that CHP, solar, wind, storage, heat pumps and other things can, can 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 deliver and, you know, solutions that we as a business can deliver. But also, and, and I think uh, Lee mentioned this, you know, that it's the subtle tweaks. And it's those subtle tweaks that actually drive behavioural change within society on a wider context. And for, for Rishi to hit the other 70-80% and to impact them, we need to convince those guys um, through through behavioural action, turning the lights off, improving, you know, turning the, the plug switch off, not keeping your laptop and or not your phone on charge all the time, and those those little marginal gains then and how they contribute will help us overcome the the, the greater wider challenges. I think.
0: Thank you, um, Karen. Um, I suppose we've got. I suppose I've got a couple of questions for you, actually. Uh, one is around the, that earlier one from the, the orders we've just referred to, around getting on board those companies who've sort of yet to join the journey. Um, but then the, the other question I had, we've talked about scope uh, one and two emissions uh, and the, the some of the challenges that that um, companies are facing in in looking at those in terms of. Scope three supply chain emissions what what do you see there as sort, sort of the, the, the biggest area where, where businesses are, are sort of struggling and what do you think is needed to, to help address that
5: yes yeah, so on the first point i did absolutely concur with others that just getting started because it's not going to go away um and your customers are going to be asking about this information so making i guess de- some of it by getting started and there is access to some information to do that actually there are like loads of open source tools and databases to get started on scope 3 and um, uh, a really nice start actually is to look at the WWF emission possible website this has got lots of good information that that's about getting started and demystifying some of this um, and also happy to share uh, other tools and information sources with your members and uh, that kind of I'm starting to compile together. But yet yeah, really important to get started. One of the biggest challenges with this is this uh, that a representative for your Supply chain. So currently, businesses on scope three on purchased goods are almost completely reliant on published data sets of average emission factors for different product and ingredient types. So, kilograms of CO2 equivalent per kilogram of beef or pork or chicken or bananas or wheat or bread or whatever you're purchasing. And actually, the values out there that are published are really variable. And in most of the data sets, there's huge ranges. So you don't actually know which numbers reflect your actual supply chains. Um, so that's a challenge. Um, and it's mm. also because those, some of those numbers are really quite old. They might be based on studies published 10 years ago, and they don't get updated very often. So it's hard to understand how to use those to track any forward progress. And know how you are improving or how you can track how you're improving so really what is needed is actually a much more systematic way of being able to access information from the supply chain and that's what's really been worked on at the moment this whole kind of piece around uh, a data infrastructure and that's where there needs to be a collaborative effort like others have said you all share supply chains. And so this this data infrastructure needs to to come with some good governance. And um, that kind of approach is starting to get thought through. I've been working in this field for nearly 20 years now, and I'm starting to see much, much more um, convening around this common challenge, which is really encouraging to see because that's going to unlock opportunities, not just on scope three accounting, but also if there are moves towards things like consumer labelling that needs to be underpinned by robust information and unlocking opportunities like carbon markets and so on. Uh, Absolutely. That, oh, sorry. Yeah. No, no, no. It just all needs this data infrastructure to be in place. Mm
0: because there's this phrase, uh, you can't manage what you can't measure. Um, and um, that reminds me, uh, Rishi, so a couple of times you, you've referred to TCFD. Um, for a lot of our attendees, uh, they may not be too familiar with that. Could you just uh, say a few words about that and how you see that as uh, important for uh, the food and drink sector? But you're on mute. <laughs> oh,
1: if I had a pound for every time I've heard that this like this in the last 40 months so um the, the, the uh, TCFD was as, it was a brainchild of sort of Mark Carney who is now my climate change pin-up boy alongside Jamie Vardy on my wall um, behind me um, and we have we have what, 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 what um, the Force and climate disclosures did was help create a framework for enabling companies and investors and banks and especially banks uh, to start reporting um their climate progress. It covers your strategy, it covers your risks, it covers your exposures. And what this helps do is give you a framework that's comparable. The TCFD, so it predominantly applies in governments, uh, not made it mandatory, but hinted at very, uh, as, as close as government gets to making something mandatory without being mandatory. Um, uh, uh, um, and it's become an important way of reporting. I wouldn't say that read all 68 pages of our, of our TCFD. There are aspects of it that are really interesting. It gives you a real idea of where... Uh, NatWest Group's exposures are. It's not been easy. I'll be entirely and brutally honest with you. We've had to work really closely with finance, with the business, with the front line, understand with risk, to really understand and bring those pieces together. But because we've been on that journey, it's helped us articulate our strategy. The other piece, and I think um, Lee referred to earlier about um, greenwashing, the good thing about TCFD and, and about this increased focus from investors is actually there's a real legal risk, and um, uh, the LSE Grantham Institute does a, a, a database of legal litigation on climate um, on climate-related litigation, and you're seeing people being sued if you don't if you're not uh, if you're not doing this properly and robustly. Now, at one level, I find that painful that I have to go through all my executive disclosure committees to get any uh, to make any disclosure. But on the other level, that's really good. It's improving the quality of our climate-related disclosures. It means that we have to really have the processes, you know, Adam talks about as well, the data collection, how we, how we do that, and be really robust. This is eventually going to come, I mean, in some ways it will be like it will be part of your financial reporting. We're also members of, of, of the Partnership on the Carbon Accounting Finance, and I think for each sector it will be slightly different in terms of what what will be your um, your trend, uh, your your sort of uh, uh, industry standard and i think that's where somewhere like the fdf has a key role in, in, in how do we how do those how do we set those standards how do we share the best tcfd so that actually when your supply chain is starting on this process they know where to start or who to look at and you know don't, don't get me wrong we look very closely at other banks to try and stay ahead of the pack and try and keep keep improving that year on year so that's been really important and the reporting piece of that I think for me, has multiple rewards. Has rewards it. So no one enjoys reporting. Well, this is, I'm sure there's some people who do, but like, you know what I mean. It's not something we all get out of bed say, I want to report it. But actually, if it gets you cheaper funding in the long term, or it enables you to attract different investors, that will help your bottom line. This will help you. And I can give you one very quick t- um, example of this. It's NatWest Group's two, green, uh, two social bonds and a green bond this year uh, in the last sorry, 12 months. We've attracted more diverse investors, we've attracted different investors, and we've been able to tap into parts of the market that we wouldn't have been able to raise capital with against. Now, as you start to think about your green and climate activities, and probably in, in, in an ESG, in a broader, like Paul was alluding to, a broader sustainability picture, think about those assets. Would your board like you to attract um, lower-cost funding? I'm, sh- I'm pretty sure they would. So let's think about how we package those up and how we think about doing that and use that reporting as a tool them um, to help our, our businesses as well. Thank you. Um-
0: Paul, um, in terms of uh, sort of Richie's comments just then around reporting, um, how are you tackling this uh, within uh, Brickwick and you know, around the scope three and I don't know if you, uh, a question on the side, um, I don't know whether you have any view on, on carbon labelling and, and the potential for that in the future?
2: Um, oh uh, yeah, it's a good question. Um, I, well, I, I think from a reporting perspective, I, I, I think developing that more sophistication on the ESG reporting is absolutely crucial. I mean, it's already coming and it's already there. Um, but the increasing, the the increasing um, need for you know investors, both current and potential future investors, and from financing is absolutely there. I mean, it's coming already, and I'm sure it's going to get. It's just going to going to keep ramping up. So. Um, being, and this is you know, back to the question a little bit earlier around, you know how do you, how do you persuade the people who aren't starting the seventy five percent or wherever where we're at, um you know it's good old behavioural change isn't it It's either motivating people to do something that's that's better for them or or giving them the stick to say if you don't do it something bad's going to happen to you, and this is this is probably a classic example of of, of that you know that 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 both of those two things are represented. Um, so, so yeah, you know, I think I think the reporting is one thing, but I think also the um, increasingly for businesses, you know, the purpose-driven business is so important for your consumers. You know, we're in FMCG and and consumer goods, so very much so. People are looking where their products are coming from, ever more so. So, uh, so being able to to have um, you know a robust and clear plan, um, not just to you know tick box and answer the right questions, but to actually when people look at it, do you, do you pass the red face test on it? It's just absolutely critical because otherwise people will stop buying your products. I'm, I'm certain. And, and, and I think the younger generation will probably be the ones that that, that start that first um, or they just won't select you in the first place. Um, so you know, carbon labeling, I think is quite complicated you know, in terms of what that potentially, you know, how do you do it and what do you measure and how do you label and all that kind of stuff. But, you know, in the same way that we've got you know, the tra- traffic lights on, Stuff in product in terms of the products itself, then you know, Why not in terms of the carbon label going forward? So I think anything that helps visibility, visibility and simplicity, and makes people, um, you know, gives people educated choices, so they understand it and they can understand it in a simple way it has to be good. Yeah. So so visibility is, is great, and that's gonna and that's gonna keep you know the momentum going and keep people motivated to move forward. Otherwise, they'll lose out. Yeah. You know, it'll be a competitive edge for the people that go first and do it well.
0: Absolutely, um, Lee, what, what What are your thoughts on those questions as well, as well around the the monitoring, reporting, particularly I think I think in this context of scope Three, but also the question around carbon labelling as well.
3: Um, I mean, around reporting, you sort of heard me advocate earlier the sort of you know don't do greenwash, um, create your interim targets. I think. Open visibility in this space is is going to be key. Paul made the comment, I think, as we, I don't know if I can use, this, use the phrase, as we start to come out of COVID, but I think customers' attitudes are changing. You know, they're looking for companies that do the right thing, have that mission, have that purpose, have the right set of values. So, you know, I, I think we can, as an organisation, you can either wait to be dragged along on this journey um, or you can choose to be at the front and try and make a difference. And I think if you if you do that, then you'll create competitive advantage and benefit your business. So I, mm. I think that openness and that transparency is is key. It brings business benefit, and I think consumers are going to demand it. Um, carbon labelling. I mean, we that's a really interesting one. I think. You know, the. the we work in a workspace where many of our consumers are far more likely, for example, to be at risk of malnutrition than they are obesity. So the the, the challenge with pack labelling always is that it's the simplicity of the message you're trying to get across, and there are lots of messages facing customers on pack. So I, I think it's challenging. That being said, it's what everybody wants. The work we're doing with the NHS at the moment um is exactly that it's carbon footprinting our meals to demonstrate to them the reduction in carbon.
0: i think we might have lost lee for a moment um whilst lee's coming back um i shall ask another question um and uh, and uh, adam I'll, I'll come to you first um lee mentioned mentioned it and actually a couple of others as well this uh idea of, I say of greenwashing, but I I kind of put it in a, in a in a different context. Looking at the role of offsetting and avoiding uh this uh, uh concern around greenwashing. Um you know when we look at the role of gas uh going forward and 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 then we've talked a little bit about a CHP um what what do you what do you see as as potential that, that the role of sort of carbon offsetting um and um what what, what's what's key to to making that that a success
4: again i think it raises it it links to what lee was saying with respect to kind of integrity and honesty is you know fundamentally if we are suggesting that we as an organization are going to um, you know, offset all of our carbon that 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 uh, is associated with producing a certain product. And I'll use a particular example of a beer. And if we subsequently say that we're you know we've now invested in a forty-five acre forest to offset that carbon, when in reality we've bought a plot of land that we'll plant a forest on over the next hundred years. You know, there's a there needs to be clarity and honesty with respect to to how we all approach carbon. Um, and and you know offsetting is all well and good if we are actually actioning upon it. Um, and again that comes back to what Paul was saying with respect to interim targets. Um, and and the associated kind of uplift that an interim target brings to your own workforce, to your employees, uh, and, and, and equally to your consumers. And I think that that is important. The role of gas, we look at National Grids future energy scenarios, we look at um, Bayes kind of forward forecasting. Biomethane injection is likely to increase the use of or the availability of renewable gas in the system. But that requires a clear um, policy incentive just now. Uh, And likewise, hydrogen is is all policymakers want to talk about with respect to gas currently, um, with, again, very little clarity as to what the strategy is going to be moving forward. But in any of the kind of the forecasts and, and future future energy scenarios, I think is, is is a good benchmark for the different ways upon which we can achieve net zero. Um, you know, within that national grid are suggesting that up until the late 2030s, early 2040s, natural gas will still have a very important part to play in energy within, within the UK. And that's energy in the context of both electricity and heat. Um, you know, And, and, and there, therein is something else that is often overlooked. We, we often consider electricity and heat as, as two distinct and separate things and, and policy diverges away for the two of them, when in reality they, they are interlinked and they're equally as important as one another on this path. Um, so consequently, you know, utilising the benefit that, that a CHP plant can can bring you in terms of financial savings, in terms of primary energy savings today, um, and, and that investment can still, as I said earlier, can, can, can be used as the enabler for allowing further investment into truly renewable zero carbon or, or carbon offsetting uh, schemes that make sense, and stand up on their own feet.
0: Mm. Um, Rishi, um, from a from the bank's point of view, um, what do you think of of sort of investing in carbon offsetting projects, and what what would be your, your, your views on, on those?
1: So, I'd say um, they are they will be an important part of how. we get to net net zero but i think the key thing with offsets is that they have to be absolutely your last resort you have to do absolutely everything you can in your processes and your business models to reduce your emissions to that basic amount the lowest amount that you can no longer reduce your emissions and we know that we'll need in in the future in the future markets those offsets will be needed for some of the industries that we can't that will be part of uh, some of the industries that we need you no, know, you will need some steel. You will need some cement, and there will need to be offsets for some of the use of those in some of your buildings and in some of your transportation. So, we have to think of um, offsets as a sort of very special thing that we get to use at the end after we've done everything else along the way. Now, what I do like to see is that the market is evolving. It's not. It's not a proper market at the moment. It's undervalued. Carbon's clearly undervalued. There's a very good um, uh, paper by our. our Um, I'm very lucky to have Lord Stern as one of our board climate advisors. pretty cool um, to get to work with uh, the the big man himself. And he recently did a paper on the social cost of carbon. And we currently undervalue the cost of carbon as an economic value and then the social impact of this uh, on society. And I think at the moment, the offsets market is is a disjointed market. But actually, it's good for businesses to be thinking about what, what offsets can they generate. Especially in this sector, there is some potential where people own further down the supply chain or have access to that, that they can create high-quality offsets. I think this market needs a bit more um, evolution. It will evolve over time. But I think I'm I'm pleased to see it evolving. I'm pleased to see it improving. But I think the the starting mantra has to be last resort. This is your absolute, Mm -hmm. where you you turn to when you've already tried to reduce your emissions to the lowest you can with existing technologies.
0: Thank you. Um, K- Karen, um, i have interested in your views around carbon offsetting. And so, I'm thinking two things here. Um, one, we've had an earlier reference that Lee made around uh, sort of d- potential for sort of should we say evolution of diets, um, and in that, and really, what I think we're getting at is, is perhaps around meat and dairy consumption, for example. Um, and then in your work with uh, at RAP and you know, and with, with the farming community, for example, and the potential for uh, offsetting projects. There, what what would be your views around around offsetting and um, the need for for projects?
5: Oh you on mute? Yeah, sorry. Uh, I would echo what Richard said. That yeah, absolutely, the right thing to do is focus on reductions first. But we we do know that there will be some. That there will be a gap that needs filling. Uh, lots are looking, and I think there's so much potential in our cultural supply chains and lots of people looking at insetting approaches there. So basically offsetting emissions but within your supply chain. Um, there is a huge amount of work that is being done and needs to evolve around accounting approaches. Again, for things like soil, carbon and um Yeah, I guess the apportioning of the benefits and who gets the benefit and double counting and challenges to resolve, but definitely there's a huge amount of uh, again cross industry work to try and move towards more harmonized approaches to enable that kind of opportunity because I think there is a big opportunity. Thank
0: you. Um, well, we now have five minutes left, so I'll have a, a one final question, which which I'd like to come to, to each of you on, and that is with everything that we've discussed this afternoon. Um, clearly, there are a lot of challenges, also a lot of opportunities. But you know, we're we're in here for the long haul. Um, if you could, uh, if you were to suggest one or two things that businesses uh, should should start off with, what they could practically do now to to uh,
2: get them to start on this journey, uh, what would you say? Um, and then we first come to Paul, oh, what would you say? Ooh, um, I would say uh, probably start with something. So, so you uh, get a bite of something that you can uh, that you can digest um, and and prove it to yourself. So, I think that would be a good start point if if, uh, if it started. And then the second from a from I would say build a. Uh, you know, a clear long term plan. Uh, and don't underestimate the, the time people resource capital resource that you will need and build up a um, uh, uh, build up the thinking behind it and think how you are going to plan in and do that. But for the long haul, which probably needs thinking about you know, ring fencing, uh, you know, a level of um, a level of investment and resources that you need to plan in to to run the business going forward. Uh, and that gives yourself the, 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 the scope and, um, and the ability to actually do something and not get caught in the in the short term running the, the, running the, the latest issue, problem or challenge that, that, that we all have to face on a day to day basis. So step outside of that and, and set yourself up to do
3: this properly for the long haul. Thank you.
0: And Lee, what would be your thoughts on that?
3: Um, I'd say start with your people, engage your teams. I think this is a it's a no-brainer in terms of people wanting to be involved in it so engage your teams promote things they can do to live lower carbon lifestyles outside of work in terms of you know employee assistance schemes but and that they'll bring that passion then to the workplace I think so that would be the first thing I'd say embed it in your purchasing and investment decisions How, how you the challenge has always been how do you take ESG and how do you Take it away from just a nice to do to something that gets factored into your decision making. And if you can get that structure in, then I think you've got the right framework going forward. Reiterate Paul's comments start with something. Um, you know, food waste. You know, food waste everywhere. Everybody has an opportunity to improve that. Why not start with a simple project like that? There, are, You know, I'll give a shout out to Karen and the RAP team. There are great materials to support that kind of work. Um, and finally talk to your suppliers because this is not something you can do on your own and I think everybody is facing the challenge around this now this is absolutely about collaboration and engage with your supply chain there are many people out there that are starting this journey and you can piggyback off the back of their progress as well so don't try and solve it all on your own
0: Thank you Lee. um Adam what, what would be your sort of last thoughts on on the immediate things that um, businesses could do to to uh, set them off
4: yeah um, I think and echoing Lee's initial point there about the team I think having both a kind of a technical and a commercial buy-in um, is critical to any any kind of sustainability target or, or carbon reduction project that, that a business might undertake so so establishing that team and having, both corporate buy-in as well as kind of technical and on-the-floor on buy-in um, and, and and then make it a policy, make it a company kind of objective and a company policy that everyone has to buy into and feels empowered by. And then the third point to that is once you've done those two things, give Clark Energy a ring. Um, allow us to kind of undertake a, an, energy, an energy audit of your facility, help you understand your utility usages and then come up with you know potential solutions um, that may not save carbon, but may produce an awful lot of financial savings that can then be invested into carbon reduction measures. Or, depending on your application and depending on on the site specifics, you know we could present a, a solution that, that saves both money and carbon. So win
0: win. Great, um, Karen, um. Quickly, in terms of um, scope three admissions, where would you ask people to start on those? What, what would be your
5: advice? Uh, yeah, I would say start with your purchase goods, uh, gather your purchasing information, use one of the freely accessible tools out there to then do a hot spotting exercise. Use that to focus your supplier engagement efforts. And I'd also say, yeah, opportunities to work with others doing that we've been testing out some the power of everyone asking the same questions and we're we're trialing kind of doing that a a sub joint supplier engagement exercise to really kind of get behind the quality of the responses and how best to ask those questions uh so yeah get get started and obviously also look at your food waste as well Good. Thank you, Karen. And
0: and Richie, I, I shall give you the, the last place on the floor. Um in in terms of um again from, from your perspective and um, from the bank's perspective, what what would be your thoughts on on offering advice to, to businesses on, on where to start in this area?
1: You give me the final words, so I'm gonna give you the three C's back. I'm gonna give you firstly colleague, and we've taken twelve hundred of our leaders through climate education at Cambridge Sustainable Leadership. We've taken people to the University of Edinburgh. I've got 2,000 strong. I call them my carbon army, the sustainable futures network. Tap into those resources you have in your business. I know we're all resourcing people constrained, but there are people, people who are willing to work for purpose because they believe in this. So tap, firstly, colleague. Secondly, customer. Think about what your customers want now and what they'll want in the future, whether you're part of the supply chain or whether you're, whether you're your end product. Um, I, I mean, Greg's famous 9.6% increase in sales on their vegan sausages. Do you want to have the next vegan sausage or do you want to have the next beta Max? And then the final one I'll end on, and it's probably appropriate in the spirit of the being in the FDF today, collaborate. You're here today to listen, to understand from each other. Let's help each other. On climate, it's not a competitive... It's, it will help you, but it's not competitive. We, it's no good, some of you winning and some of you not. We all have to act together and decarbonize our industry and, 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 and the, the economy. So let's collaborate, let's learn from each other, let's share best practice and show, show that we can tackle this challenge.
0: Thank you, Rishi. I, I couldn't have put it better myself. Um, well, thank you to everyone. Thank you uh, to all of you panellists and to everyone for joining us today uh, on the, uh, to, to listen to us. And uh, uh, thank you to everyone.